Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and this is the third episode in our Harry Potter and New World Wine series, wherein I pair a New World Wine region with each of the Harry Potter books by J.K. Rowling. This episode is the first installment of Book Two, or The Chamber of Secrets, and I was joined by none other than my partner in crime, and also my husband, Winston Shaw. There are some spoilers in this episode for the whole Harry Potter series. Nothing too huge, but if you haven't read them all or seen the film somehow and really want, like, zero spoilers, you may want to sit this one out. Also, I believe I've said this on the Patreon, but just so everyone knows, I'm going to be releasing these Harry Potter episodes every other month so that we don't have, like, seven months straight of Harry Potter episodes. Not that there's anything too wrong with that, but if you want a Harry Potter-only themed podcast, there are so many awesome ones out there, like Potterless and Witch Please, so go check those out. Also, sorry, I've got a very noisy cat in here recording with me right now, and there's just nothing to be done about it. A few things before we get going. First of all, it's a new year, and so we have revamped our Patreon a bit. Most notably, we have added a producer-level tier for $15 a month. If you pledge at that level, not only will you get personalized pairings from me, access to monthly live streams, audio extras, and more, but once a month you'll receive access to an in-depth audio essay from me about a particular wine topic. I wanted to offer this tier, since we don't often have enough time to go into a ton of depth within the episodes themselves. And let's be real, not everyone wants to go into that depth, and that's totally cool. But I know some of our listeners are interested in learning a little bit more about wine, so I wanted to offer a little deeper education. I was inspired by the Thanksgiving bonus mini-episode that I made for patrons, and everyone can now go listen to that episode on our Patreon to get a little taste of what you'll be in for. In addition to the audio essay, you will also be thanked as a producer in every episode, in addition to our advanced producers like Mara Zobrist, who is cleverer than Hermione and braver than Harry. The other big news with our Patreon is that we have updated our next goal. If we make it to $200 a month, we will start supplying merch. Don't you want an adorable cat with a glass of wine on a t-shirt or mug or sticker? Then consider pledging something, even just $1 a month, to our Patreon. We're over halfway there, so if enough folks join us, we will start making that. Also, all of our patrons will get a discount. So fun! Lastly... Our New Year's resolution is to get more people listening to pairing. So if you are listening, you can help us reach that goal in a few ways. The best way is to recommend us to a friend, family member, or even a foe. I'm not that picky. The second, more mysterious way is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't use Apple to listen to your podcasts, if you have an iPhone and follow the link in the show notes, you can leave a review lickety-split, no problem. Okay, without further ado... Here is episode 28, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, part one. Okay. All right, we're recording, but I'm going to take out my earrings because they're poking me. Mm, They're poking you? Yeah, they're poking me. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, no, it's not good. Gotta, gotta make sure to take out the earrings because they're either going to be jangly or they're going to be pokey. That's what I've learned in uh, five plus years of voice acting. Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the technically third but second installment, we'll say, of our Harry Potter and New World Wines series of pairing podcast. 
Hello, Harry. Yeah, hello, Harry. Um, so I'm joined by my Foley slash voiceover partner. I'm 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 your HubSpot. HubSpot. Winston. 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 Hello, HubSpot. Yeah. Reporting for duty. <laughs> okay. How can I serve okay. you today? So we are going to be talking about, you might have guessed, the, the next book in Harry Potter, in the Harry Potter series. I didn't guess it because you told me. After Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, then comes Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Which is for real. I think it's, it's an underrated book. Everybody likes to talk about how Prisoner of Azkaban is like the the for real deal. I think Chamber of Secrets doesn't get enough credit. I agree. I still, I, Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite. That's and fine. I, and I think it is the best, objectively. Yeah, I mean, I like but, other books more than Chamber of Secrets, too. I just think it's overlooked. I agree. I think it's overlooked, which re- leads me to my wine region. So, in case you forgot, Winston and listeners, if you forgot... The Harry Potter and New World wine series that we're doing is, um, it's going to be a little bit broader than the depth that I went into with the Middle Earth and Old World wine series, where I talked that a was lot way of, specific. that was very specific and in a lot of depth. And in retrospect, might have been a lot of information to throw at you all at once. But so, so what we're doing with Harry Potter is we're pairing New World wine regions with each book. So with each book, I'm pairing a one big major region. We're going to talk about it a little bit. We're not going to go into a huge amount of depth. But so, so you were talking about how Chamber of Secrets, you think it's underrated. I agree. I do. And so uh, the wine region that I picked for this book is New Zealand. New Zealand. New Zealand. Oh, my. Yes. And the reason why is because, so it's not that New Zealand isn't super, super popular. Like, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is maybe the most single most popular, like, varietal from a place ever. Does it kind of look down upon? I mean... Um, some people in the wine industry kind of look down upon it. But it's like anything. There's, like, there's different levels of quality of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. But in my personal opinion, I like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I think it's very good. It's a good go-to uh, when when I look at a wine list or if I'm in the store and I'm like, I don't really know what I want. It's very refreshing. It's very citrusy. It's very bright. Um, and some people don't like that. Some people don't like how kind of citrus grapefruity it is okay. and prefer the kind of grassier style of the Loire Valley in France or something like that. But we're not drinking New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc tonight. What I wanted to talk about are the other grapes, which I think are underrated from New Zealand. And my favorite one is Chardonnay. I think that New Zealand Chardonnay is absolutely spectacular. I've talked about this a lot with you. Right. And and, and Chardonnay in general, we've talked about, is, is totally. underrated. Well, Just like Merlot. Like, they're, yeah. they're really great examples yeah. of both. And you're not a bad person for liking either one. No, certainly not. And I mean, and they're actually some of the best wines. And I argue that some of the best good value Chardonnay is coming from New Zealand. So if you like a kind of Burgundy style, a kind of French Chardonnay style, go for a New Zealand Chardonnay because they're very similar in style, much, much less pricey. So anyway, we'll get into that a little bit more, but we're not drinking Chardonnay tonight because, much as I just talked about it forever, um, but we're not drinking it. We're going to be drinking Pinot Noir because it just didn't feel right to be drinking a white wine while talking about Chamber of Secrets. Chamber of Secrets feels like a red wine book. Okay. Yeah. Right? Sure. Doesn't that feel right? And yeah. I feel it's got like snakes. 
It's got snakes. It, snakes are chthonic. That's a word I learned in college. Oh, hey, that's one of your uh, those My words. My two dollar words. Yeah. Okay. I, well, I, I'm I'm just yeah. gonna pour you some of this wine while you oh, talk. Oh, thank you so much. Um, okay. So one of the things I think. Wait, I just wanted. I just well, want to real quick say that this. Never does, mind. This... I, I didn't think. I take it back. I take my thinking back. Well, he's gonna think very soon. I just while we're talking about the <laughs> wine that we're drinking, I, this is a great episode. I don't know why I wanted to wait till tomorrow <laughs> to record it. This is perfect. Yeah. Um. So, uh, we are drinking the Greywacky Pinot Noir, and Greywacky is considered kind of th- one of the best producers. I didn't necessarily plan on getting this wine for this purpose, but I saw it in the store and they only had like three New Zealand Pinot Noirs and two of them looked kind of meh and this one looked, uh, and I know Grey Wacky, I know they're Sauvignon Blancs, they're absolutely terrific, we'll talk a little bit more about them later, but they are one of the best producers in New Zealand Hands down, their wines are incredible. So I was like, what the hell? I'll spend 40 bucks on this bottle of wine for this purpose. And uh, yeah. let's see if it's worth it. Cheers. Cheers. Mine is plastic. Yeah, so you could eat again. Here, I'm going to cheers the bottle. That kind of worked. That's so delicious. Oh, yeah, that's damn fine. Yeah, that's a damn fine bottle of wine. Emma was going to give me one of our wedding glasses of wine. Yeah. And I was like, nope, I can't be trusted with that. Yeah. <laughs> I need a plastic glass. This well, is a small space. Normally... I'm a big, floppy person. Yeah, this is yeah. Not work. It's okay. It's okay. Um, it just means that the, the clinking sound isn't as, as gorgeous, but mm. that's okay. Uh, yeah, it's okay. I'm sorry. It's fine. I'm sorry. It's fine. Anyway, <laughs> you were thinking earlier. Oh, yeah. Uh, occasionally, yeah, um, I do think. Um, one of the things I, I like about Chamber of Secrets a lot is that as the sequel to this book that, you know, I kind of thought it was like, oh, hey, we're basically just sort of ripping off Roald Dahl. Like, mm-hmm. you were introduced to this amazing society. You're like, oh, I want to go there. Magic, so amazing, so cool. And then in the second book, one year later, she's like, by the way, this society is super fucked up. Yeah. It's filled with racism, yeah. slavery, yeah. classism, and all kinds of huge problems that an 11-year-old can perceive. Yes. And it's related to you in a way that's like, oh, yeah, you as a child can perceive that yes. these things are wrong. Right. And, you know, the Lucius Malfoy character mm-hmm. and all the all the stuff about the Chamber of Secrets. It's all about, like, the classism and the, and the yeah. racism and everything that's wrong with all of our human societies, but also with this wizarding society. And so I love that in the second book, it's like, no, 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 wait, <laughs> there's lots of problems. Yeah. I just wrote down, you know, because we were just saying, you know, the second book and the second movie, they still feel like children's books and children's movies more so than everything that follows like they get progressively more and more mature but this is still a children's book but it has little hints of darkness right and much 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 more so than in sorcerer's stone when that same way of like um hayao miyazaki like Mm -hmm. taking children seriously and understanding that children can can have moral integrity and make moral decisions I, I think yes. Yeah, I'm, really ha- I'm really happy. I'm really happy about this wine. Wonderful wine. I I'm gonna be honest. So I possibly underrate Pinot Noir from 
uh, from New Zealand myself, but it's possible that I haven't had a really good one. This is by far the best that's, New Zealand yeah, Pinot Noir I've fabulous. ever had. They're they're usually a little bit kind of juicier, which you get from this, but there's that kind of brightness, and like you said, there's kind of like a toasty, almost nutty quality to it. Yeah. It's it's really really good. Okay, I'm sorry. Back to no sorry. Back to the book. Yes. So, like, even things like, you know, Harry by mistake showing up in Nocturne Alley. Like, you still see, like, there's the wonderment and the, you know, being introduced to flu powder. Like, that's a new thing. Like, Harry still is discovering things, and thus we are discovering things through his eyes in a very kind of wonderful way. Mm -hmm. But then he screws it up, and he ends up in this very scary place. Which I don't, it's not even that bad. It's just oh, no, like, it's not even that like, bad. Like, even but... in the book, it's like, oh, okay, so, like, people have bad teeth. It's basically like, Harry encounters yeah. poor people. Right, yeah, I guess maybe, <laughs> Even <yeah>. in Magic <laughs> World, yeah. there's poor people. Well, but the Weasleys are, well, here's my thing. The Weasleys are supposed to be super poor, but. But they're, like, poor middle class. Yeah, I, I feel like they're middle class, and I feel like they're poor because they just have so many kids. And so they have right. to take care of so many kids. Because, like, Arthur's got a job in the ministry. Yeah. Like, it's not the highest paying job, but. Well, I think one of the things is that the, the reason they're given crap is, like, they're a very old, pure blood wizarding yeah. family. And so the fact that he's just like a government worker yeah. who's interested in muggles and poor people, like that scene is déclassé. It's not even right. so much that they don't they lack money, so much as it's the fact that they're like, "Oh yeah, like I just am a public servant." Right. And right. I care Which... about people. And that's seen by, you know, the Malfoys of the world as a betrayal of your class. Which, this is one of the most interesting kind of things that the movie did differently than the book. Maybe not the most interesting, but in the book, in that scene in Flourish and Blots, um, after Gilderoy Lockhart, who I want to talk about. Oh, definitely. Oh, we're talking about Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh, yeah. Um, In this scene in Flourish and Blots... And there's this altercation, and you meet Lucius or Lucius, however you want to say it. I don't. I, I like. I like Lucius. Lucius. But I think Lucius. I think I always read it as Lucius. Um, but anyway, so you meet you meet Lucius for the first time, and you're like, oh wow, we thought Draco was bad. This guy is like a million times worse. Yeah. Imagine him with yeah. like all the money in yeah. the world <laughs> and yeah. and actual power. And in that scene. He and Arthur Weasley, they do insult each other, and then they fight. Then they start fighting in the bookshop. In the movie, it's just like, you and I have very different opinions of what makes a bad wizard, Malfoy, or whatever he says, and then kind of like goes on his way. Because Arthur Weasley's dope. Oh, I love Arthur Weasley. All the Weasleys. Let's talk about the Weasleys. Let's talk about how much we love the the Weasleys. The Weasleys are fucking dope. They represent everything that you should do with social capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for maybe Percy. Like, oh, Percy's the worst. And even then, like, they totally earned it. It's just that Percy took that capital and shat on it. But the yeah. rest of the Weasleys are like, hey, we've got this power and this privilege, and all we're going to do is pay it forward yeah. all the time. Yep. And you know what? I, I also want to put this out there. You do not have to be loyal to your family. If your family abuses you, if your family makes you feel crazy, if your family um, makes you feel outcast or wrong, you definitely do not have to, like, show up to be counted with those people. You definitely don't. 
And the fact that the Weasleys all kind of show up together with the exception of Percy, and Percy's the bad one, you know what? That doesn't mean that that's the ideal family. And if it's not the ideal family for you, that's fine. Sure, sure. Yes, and it's Sorry, still... Sorry, that was my, my heavy moment. That was a heavy moment, but it was good. it's worth saying, and it's worth saying, well, you know, you've got Harry and you've got... Ron and the reason the reason why they and they're such good foils for each other is because as you're talking about Harry's quote unquote family the Dursleys, I mean they are his family technically, right, yeah, um, and they do everything that you just said. They make him feel unloved, unwanted, wrong, and bad, and uh, and he rejects them, and that's. Hey, that's good for Harry. We find out later that there's reasons why blah 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 blah. They're important. Blah 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 blah. But but that's just you know by the wayside. But but yeah, like one thing that Emma and I were talking about last episode is that the the conflict between Harry and Ron and what they're jealous of each other about is built really well throughout the series. It really is. And it I escalates think. really organically. Like, it makes sense that by book four in Goblet of Fire, it makes sense that Ron is so jealous of Harry at that point that he's willing to believe that he did this thing without telling him. Like, at that point, like, it makes sense because right. it's just been three years of escalation of this kind of jealousy. While Harry... He wants family. He wants family, and he doesn't... And he also he doesn't want to be a hero. No, he doesn't. He doesn't want to be a hero. I do think that Harry's kind of dumb about like his own privilege sometimes. Yeah. But it's a very interesting relationship, and right. I think that J.K. Rowling does it really, really well. Well, I mean, if you think about it, his mother really mm-hmm. is Hermione. Like he has yeah. no familial supervision. He has no positive role outside of his like Dumbledore. Between Mrs. Weasley Lupin and Hermione, later. yeah. But like, really, his conscience and Ron's conscience as well. I mean, really, the hero of the whole series is Hermione. Oh, absolutely, but, no dispute. But she pretty much raises Harry. Yeah, in a way, know? I think between Hermione and Mrs. Weasley, those are those are the two maternal figures. Right. Which which is very interesting to me that J.K. Rowling like put a lot more emphasis on the father figures than the mother figures. In the book, like, you know, between Hagrid, Sirius, Lupin, Dumbledore, like, they are the ones that Harry really feels attached to. And and someone was saying on Potterless, on an episode of Potterless, like, Harry doesn't really ask about his mom very much. He's only concerned with his dad. Right. Which is very, until until a little bit later in right. the series. Well, because his mom is this, like, perfect goddess of love and mercy right. on the pedestal. Right, You know, but I will say, like, as somebody who ended up growing up kind of with a father's situation in flux, it is very true, and I, I think I read this in a Charles Fraser book, like, anyone who didn't really know their father... yeah. We collect father figures. Yeah. And and, and that's been the experience of my life, whether sure. it's Doug McHugh, Chuck, you know, mm-hmm. like everybody who, you know, I come across who's a male who's like halfway yeah. decent. I'm like, you're now my mentor. Hmm. You know, yeah. just like in scrubs. That's or interesting. You know? Yeah. And I think that especially for boys, it's, it's not that we need um, a father figure. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that there's, like, a a curiosity of, like, you know, nobody's really told me what the world of men is like. 
I think there's or, importance to having uh, role models. Yeah. In you need a positive role, like yeah, you need somebody to fill the space of somebody who couldn't be there. I think that we as boys, especially because we're not as smart or mature <laughs> as women, yeah, like we're, we're kind of like, no. but what does a daddy do? Yeah, a, what's a what's a what's a boy when he grows up? And you know, it's nice to have somebody tell you. Yeah, and. Um, it doesn't have to be a man, and I think really Hermione does raise Harry and Ron. In many, but... many ways, yeah, she is. I feel like Hermione is like J.K. Rowling. Yeah, really. yeah, she's you know? yeah. That I think that makes sense. I think because because what I was gonna say is interesting to me because we know that J.K. Rowling was a single mother and she started writing these books for her daughter. Yeah, so if you're a single mother, you have to be both parents. Yeah, exactly. Well, And so that's why it's so interesting to me that she chose, and I think it's, I want to say that it's purposeful, why she chose to focus so much on the father figure for Harry. And maybe that, maybe she's very more insightful than I am and knew that that was what Harry needed. But Anyway, I think we've digressed a little bit. Oh, yes, um, sorry. But no, that's quite I've all right. I've made it all about me. That's quite all right. Whoops. Um, speaking of making it all about you, let's talk about Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh, um, <laughs> I love Gilderoy oh, Lockhart. Oh, my God. He is a phenomenal character. I'm going to I'm gonna give you a hot take right now. Give me that hot take. Okay, so I was re-listening. Lay it down, I'll pick it up. I was listening to um, the, the Jim Dale audiobook of of Chamber of Secrets a few weeks ago. And at a certain point, it just clicked for me. I was like, oh my God, Gilderoy Lockhart is Donald Trump. Because it because he is so incompetent and so unable to accept his incompetence and the way that he is not accomplished or just able to fulfill the job that he's been given, the only thing he's good at is, is dishonesty. Is dishonesty and convincing right. people that he is good. I, I totally agree with that. My my take kind of comes at it from the same angle, which okay. is that Gilderoy Lockhart is the eponymous representative of white male yes. mediocrity. Yes. He is the ultimate example yes. of a white dude with no qualifications mm-hmm. being elevated over far more qualified people who are not white dudes. Right. And everyone just cheering and fawning the whole time. Yeah. Like, oh my God. And it's like almost, it's it's almost like professional wrestling. It's like, yeah. you know you're being lied to. Yeah. Like, you know Gilderoy Lockhart didn't defeat all the giants and yeah. do the thing and all yeah. that shit. Like, he didn't bewitch everybody. He bewitched the people who did it. But again, it's like, He's stealing credit from real workers with real qualifications. He is white male mediocrity personified. I and agree with that. I think 100%. that's hundred percent the other thing that makes the book really cool. Yeah, I I agree with that hundred percent. And I would argue that uh, Donald Trump is white male mediocrity personified. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I mean, like... <laughs> I mean, where to begin? Yeah, like, this man has accomplished nothing. Yeah. In his entire life. Yes, he has signed his name to a couple of contracts on TV deals that he did not earn because his father funneled him money in tax. Sorry, this is a whole different you deal. You could, to me, you could be talking about Gilderoy Lockhart. I, I could go <laughs> on and on Yeah, and let's, not, on let's not go down that rabbit hole president. Much, but, but what I love about it is that this book, they're supposed to sort of track the ages, right? Yeah. So at 11... 
Harry Potter is being exposed and, and Hermione and Ron and everybody, they're being exposed to the fact that like, oh, wait a minute. The people who are supposed to be in charge are. don't necessarily have good judgment. Also, I'm just going to clarify, they're 12 in this book. Oh, they're 12 in this yeah. book. Yeah. Right. So they're 12 years old yeah. and they're like, okay, here's this totally mediocre idiot. Yeah. And not even media. I mean, yeah. really, he's good at one thing, right? Yeah. He's good at stealing. He's and... good at stealing. He's good at convincing people that he did something that he didn't do. Right. Yeah. Huh. Weird. Yeah. Weird. Uh, like, who would ever fall for that? Yeah. Except for most of the adult population of the Western it's world. It's a little unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little it's, unsettling. It's too easy a scam. Yeah. So this leads me... Uh, this this is unfair, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about New Zealand wine. Um, and <laughs> this is unfair because this, this wine is really fine. But there is a winemaker called Kim Crawford in okay. New Zealand. Probably maybe the most famous... A name in New Zealand wine. Kim Crawford is actually a man, and um, Word. and makes makes wine in in New Zealand. Now that I'm saying this, I don't actually know that Kim Crawford is a white person. Um, but I'm I'm assuming that he is, and I would say that Kim Crawford. Okay, not entirely fair to equate Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc with Gilroy Lockhart or Donald Trump, but. It is kind of like the easiest, like most boring and yet most right. popular. And and I feel bad saying that because, you know, like Kim Crawford's Sauvignon Blanc, it's fine. You know, it's 15 bucks a bottle and it's it's nothing special, but it's nice. It's dry. It's crisp. But I feel like people have elevated it to such a high status that I'm like, why? There's so many other better wines coming out of New Zealand made by women like my favorite winemaker in New Zealand Jules Taylor um I haven't talked about her on the podcast much yet I mentioned her in the in the uh end of the women in wine I mean the women's wrestling episode last uh last episode I want to be really honest with you right now hi baby I feel like women's competence is utterly discounted most of the time. Well, women, I think, are fundamentally more competent. <laughs> I, I, I agree with <laughs> and that. And this is very binary, and this is not accounting yeah, for... Right. But I'm saying, know, like, but... let's say we were at brunch today. Yes. At, a, like, the only place in Santa Fe that shows football. That's not why we went there, but we looked at their brunch menu, and it looked good, and it was, it was very actually good. quite very good. good. Yeah. Right? But so there's this dude... Um, running around trying to fill to I mean the place is packed like everyone's slammed it's huge it's it, yeah. it's a problem and and you can see like he's struggling but he's getting it done like he's working hard right on the other end of the bar there's another bartender who's yeah. a woman and she's getting slammed equally hard with the tickets you perverts. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and she's filling it out. And this is, I happen to know her and she's also a single mother. And so she's just like quietly, like oh my God, effortlessly compared... doing the thing. And then she's like, oh, and then I'm going to go home and be a mother to my tiny child. You know, and like women's competence in that way and women's composure in that way is so, is discounted by our society in what I think is like 
a criminal way. Yeah. Because think about that shit. Like, this dude, yeah, like, yeah, he managed to do his job. But he was bitching about it the whole time. Yeah. Like he was talking to us. Yeah. Thing. And she, and this, on the other end of the bar, just, all right, she doing didn't, her thing. Yeah, just, she was just doing her thing. She was cool as a cucumber. Yeah. yeah, and then she's going to go home to a five-year-old. You know, and like, I mean, I think if you can be a single mom, you can do anything. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, and and it's ridiculous to me that we live in a society that's like, okay, well, but what about a chubby white dude's opinion? You know, like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. Sorry. That's my rant. There we go. We've had several rants. It's it's quite all right. Sorry. Chamber of Secrets, very volatile book. Yeah. Very volatile you text. Know. <laughs> no, but there, about it. but there is. You're right. You know, first we've got Gilderoy Lockhart, who is the epitome of male mediocrity. Right. White male mediocrity specifically, I would say. Yeah. Um, and... Lucius Malfoy. Lucius Malfoy, who is the epitome. So maybe Donald Trump... unearned privilege. Maybe Donald Trump is like the love child of Gilderoy Lockhart and Lucius Malfoy. he's somewhere around there. He's somewhere between there because he's more evil than Gilderoy Lockhart is. Because Gilderoy... I mean, Gilderoy Lockhart's a little evil. He's pretty evil. He's pretty evil. Um, But so first we've got Gilderoy Lockhart, which I feel... I already feel bad that I compared Kim Crawford to Gilderoy Lockhart because Kim Crawford... The wines of Kim Crawford are very good. And actually, Kim Crawford went on to do a couple other projects that he didn't put his name on. And I think some of those are actually way better than the the Kim Crawford label. Because those, I think, they've, they've just gotten to a point where they've gotten this reputation that I think they're overpriced. And they're still, like, fairly reasonable, but they're... There are other wines that are better at lower prices. Um, for example, if you're looking for really good New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that's cheap, Wither Hills, it's a wine that we featured at the store that I used to work at one month. I loved that wine, and it was like $12, and it was so good. It was my favorite New Zealand, maybe one of my favorite New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs that I've ever had. So there you go. But if you can, go find Jules Taylor. It's hard to find her wines. They're a little bit, they're just a little bit harder to find, but she, oh my God, she's the coolest person in the world. I just want to be her. I met her around the time that we were deciding between going to Europe or going to New Zealand for our honeymoon. And I have to say, I was like, I want to go to New Zealand and I want to stay with Jules Taylor at her winery and have her teach me how to be a person. Let's hang out and be yeah. <laughs> She's just amazing. She's my cool wine mom. Okay, but we've talked about, okay, so we've talked about the white male mediocrity. Next thing you mentioned was racism. So in this book, we are introduced to the term mudblood, which, yep. there we go. J.K. Rowling just laid it out there um, that, you know, people are racist against, quote unquote, non-purebloods. Right. And one of the things I think is actually perfect about how she does it, like, You can criticize her for all the stuff that she's done lately and whatever. Mm -hmm. But one thing I think is brilliant is that the idea of people being racist against mudbloods is as ludicrous as all racism is. Yeah. And it shows that because it's like they have the same magical power. Yeah. Like at no point. And that whole thing like way later, I mean... In the seventh book, when it's talking about, like, oh, well, you couldn't have gotten magic power. You must have stolen a wand. Where it's like, well, first of all, everybody knows that wands don't give you magic power. Like, a squib or a muggle could pick up a magic wand and could do absolutely dick with it. Which leads to one of the problems that a lot of people have with the books, which is that the system of magic in the book 
is unclear. It is, and and because, there's problems, with and that. there's problems with it. And the way I the way I imagine it in my head canon, the way wands work is like they are a vehicle and they help you at first, yeah. um, to to channel, yeah, your your magic through so to speak, but that at a certain point you wouldn't necessarily need your wand. Well, like your wand would right. amplify your power, but you you would still have the power right. without it. It's like throwing a bullet with your hand as sure. opposed to shooting it through a gun. Sure, that's a very violent metaphor. But it, what it is is it, it makes no sense. Yeah. Like all racism, it makes no fucking sense. Oh, you must have stolen a wand. No, well, and even no. if I did, like how would that... What? Does that matter? Yeah. You know, like you couldn't see the things. Uh, it doesn't. And I think that's wonderful. It's a wonderful exposure of how stupid racism is all the time. It's the same thing like, okay, in the United States, we have like a lot of people who are panicked about immigration from the southern border. Mm-hmm. Right? Mexico and beyond. Well, here are the facts. The facts are that immigrants commit crimes less than natural-born U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. Immigrants contribute more to the economy than natural-born U.S. citizens per capita. The safest places in our country are places that are first-generation immigrant neighborhoods. And they're taking out way less from the social safety net than they are putting in. And those are the facts. And that's been known since Reagan's presidency. And... So there. So to think otherwise, yeah, you have to be willfully obtuse, or fucking racist, or both. And it's nice that she gives us an eye into how irrational fucking racism is. Right. The only downside I could say is that, as with any portrayal of racism as those bad people, yeah, you can always say like, oh well, I'm not the Malfoys. Like, I'm yeah. not racist. Well, I think like, the, the... Like, get get it together. The main issue that I have is, like, the simplification of it's like, well, all the Slytherins are racist and no one else is. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. It's... <laughs> no, and that's that's true, too. And I, yeah. think, I think later she sort of touches on that. Maybe not enough. She, she touches on it, like, a little bit. And then there's, like, one or two good Slytherins right. in the whole series. But that is a big problem and of trying to externalize all the bad yeah, qualities. Yeah. I'm just sensitive to this because I've taken the Pottermore quiz, like, three times. And I, my whole life, I was sure I was a Ravenclaw. And I've taken this quiz three times, and I've gotten Slytherin all three times. However... She totally is, listeners. She totally is. She's such a Slytherin. (laughs) Baby, I love you. Shut up, Hufflepuff. I am. I am a Hufflepuff. Okay. Um, But, so, how I've come to think about it is, like, okay, so the qualities that are inherent to being Slytherin are ambition. Like, the main one's ambition. They're politicians. They're politicians, which I... I don't think of myself as a politician, but... Well, you'd be a better one than me. Eh, maybe just because I wouldn't want to be. But but so, like, to equate ambition... But sure, yes, ambition is dangerous in certain hands. But is it inherently evil? No. Are well, all one, people who... I think Dumbledore goes out of his way to say that. Yeah, too. and 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 are people who are ambitious inherently racist? No. Hey, you know what's an easy stepping stone to power? Racism. Yeah. I'm just going to put my foot in my mouth one more time. 
because one another thing that occurred to me while I was listening to the book uh, and watching the movie, rewatching the movie recently. Um, okay, I adore Kenneth Branagh, and I he think is he is wonderful, perfect in this role. He is hysterical, and he's just the right amount of. You get that he's that he's more evil than he comes off as. Like, he's not just an inept buffoon. And Kenneth Branagh is just, I'm a Shakespeare nerd. I love you, Kenneth. And I know a lot of people don't care for him as much, but I I think he's... Some people think he's a little self-indulgent, I think, which is maybe fair. Like, his Hamlet is long. It's very long. But but he wanted to do Hamlet uncut, and he... Yeah, but his much ado is really good. I think... I think most things that he touches are really good, but I don't actually know why people don't like him. Um, but the way that I always grew up picturing uh, Gilderoy Lockhart, the closest person that I have found in real life to looking like how I picture Gilderoy Lockhart is Master Sommelier Bobby Stuckey, who I think you've met Winston yeah. at, at Frasco Food and Wine. Yep. He's just like the epitome of like, I mean, he's not blonde anymore. He's kind of got he's kind of he's kind of a silver fox at this point, but he's got the little like dimple in his chin uh, yeah. and uh he is the most wonderful person in the world. He could not be more different from Gilderoy Lockhart personality-wise, but I was just bringing it up because I thought it was funny because I think that that's what I would picture Gilderoy Lockhart looking like. Ah, uh, so there we go. But yes, there's a great article with Bobby and Jordan Salcito, another fabulous woman in the wine industry. Um, she's interviewing him, and he's talking about natural wines, and he refers to quote-unquote natural wines as the Fox News of the wine industry, and it's terrific. Go check it out. Okay, so we've talked, so we've managed to talk about white male mediocrity. We've managed to talk about racism. So let's talk about slavery, because we also meet. Dobby. Poor Dobby. Poor Dobby. And as we were saying, like, because I've been listening to pretty much all the Harry Potter books on Audible while I just, like, am doing stuff, and you've been listening to some of it at the same time, and in later books, when Hermione kind of gets on her spew path of, uh, what is it, the Society for the Protection and Empowerment of, of Elf, elf Welfare. welfare. Yes, yeah. there we go. Um, and you know, Harry and Ron just, like, really take the mickey out of her, as the Brits would say. <laughs> I believe that means make fun of her. It does. It does. But we're, we're listening to this, and it's like, Hermione's 100% right. Yeah. Like, 100%. Big time. Big time. And the fact that we get to, like, I mean, and J.K. Rowling is, I think, she does so very artfully introducing the concept of slavery in a not totally terrifying way to children, but also in a way that makes you be like, this is wrong. This is so wrong. Well, but the first and, person you meet is Dobby, and he's, like, beating himself with yeah, fire irons. Yeah. And... But the idea is that it's supposed to be somewhat of a comical scene. Well, yeah. And But think about, like, zoom out from that for a second and think about how captive your mind has to be where you're like, oh, even thinking a bad thing about my abusive master means I have to punish myself. This is somebody who's like born into slavery and raised to believe that even thinking a bad thought means they have to physically hurt themselves. Yeah. That's fucking 
nuts. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's absolutely evil. Yeah, but I think I think she introduces it in a really clever way, introducing to introduce children. Like you said, like this book is very digestible to children, but there are really the seeds of some of the same very deep dark through lines that go throughout the book that some that come up in a little bit more intensity later in the series. Yeah. So I guess I I just have I I think that's all true, but I do have a little bit of criticism of her. I mean, starting with this book and proceeding to the end of the series, the idea of like they are happy slaves is said numerous times by Harry and Ron. And, and yeah, but I think Hagrid that's why she has Hermione fighting against it. Well, right, but it's you know I think it's cool that she's like, hey, you're gonna be on the fringe sometimes if you're fighting for social justice. I think yeah. that's really cool, but I don't think she really legitimizes the anti-slavery movement in a way that you know that she really could. You know, I think that's true. I think Except, that's. I mean, fair. there's that one scene at the very, very end of the series where I don't want to spoil everything, but like the house elves like kind of come out. Yeah. Like fighting. Yeah. At one point. Yeah. But even then, it's not like. Well, sad. and she it's tries, insane. and she tries to save face by saying, you know, all the house elves that work in Hogwarts are, uh, you know, like Dumbledore has offered them pay and freedom and blah blah blah, and but so they won't again, take that's, it. That's like this. Like, that's the Southern apologist. Like yeah. some slaves were happy. Yeah. It's yeah. The same bullshit. Yeah. No. Really no, you're right. Acceptable. You're you're very very right. Yeah. But hey. Props to her for pointing out that it's bad and wrong. Hey, you know what? Props to her for engaging. Yeah. You know what? You're not always going to engage right, and people are going to criticize you, and that's fine. But she did engage, and that in and of itself, from my privileged pedestal, is like, that's that's worth something. To say like, hey, this is problematic. Yeah. And maybe it, you don't deal with it in the most perfect way, but that's fine because at least you were willing to like look at it in the face. Yeah. yeah. No, I something. I think so. I think something. so. That's yeah. worth something. That is worth something. I don't know. It's worth everything, but it's yeah. worth something. Um. Okay. Maybe I'll talk about. Uh. Maybe I'll talk about New Zealand a little bit more. Just to give people a little bit more. Yeah, maybe I'll shut up and stop talking about slavery and murder. <laughs> How about that? You're, you know, I just bring you on for the laughs. And <laughs> just <laughs> all the puppies. Yeah. There's so many puppies. So many puppies. Um, okay, so New Zealand. I don't know a super ton about New Zealand as a whole. But in case you don't know, New Zealand is comprised of two islands. The North Island and the South Island. Most of the wine, at least most of the wine that is wild, widely exported, comes from Marlborough at the very north tip of the South Island. Huh. Yes. So, so like, this wine is, I believe this is Marlborough. Yep, this is Marlborough. And most Sauvignon Blanc comes from Marlborough. It is the most, I would say, prolific wine region. If not necessary. I mean, people would say it's technically the best you know it's like the napa valley of new zealand but there's a couple other different regions there's the central otago which is also in the south island but as it sounds a little bit more central more south and mostly pinot noir comes from there as far as i understand and then on the north island kind of as a counter auckland yeah there's auckland but as a as a counterpoint to 
Mar- Mar- Marlborough. There is Martinborough, which is at the south, kind of close to the south tip of the North Island. Hmm. And then the last major wine region. There's a bunch of other wine regions within New Zealand. I'm pretty sure they make wine everywhere on New Zealand. Um, but the the last one is Hawke's Bay, which is kind of in, in a, the Hawke's Bay, which is east, kind of eastern, northeastern of the of the North Island. So that is the geography and where things come from. Um, and I mentioned a couple of producers that I like. I, I'm really sorry, Kim Crawford. Kim Crawford is very good. If you see it like at a store or on a wine wine list, go ahead, get you some Kim Crawford. It's delish. But Jules Taylor is really my favorite because she's awesome and I want to be just like her when I grow up. And uh, her Chardonnay is to die for. As I've been talking about, I love, love, love New Zealand Chardonnay. But so we're drinking this gray wacky Pinot Noir. And as I gray, said, gray wacky. Gray Wacky. So Gray Wacky is the name of the stones, like the stones in the riverbed. Really? Yeah. So it's named after Gray Wacky Stones. Hmm. Um, And Kevin Judd is the winemaker. And Kevin Judd, he's English. He studied in Australia, but then he moved to New Zealand in the 80s. And he was one of the founding winemakers or the founding winemaker of Cloudy Bay. You might have heard of Cloudy Bay. It's the other most famous. I would say Cloudy Bay and Kim Crawford. And Oyster Bay, too. Those are the three most popular or, like, wildly, widely mass-produced. For some reason, I keep saying wildly instead of widely. I like it. Grey Wacky also makes a uh, Sauvignon Blanc called Wild. So maybe that's why. There's a wild Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but, yeah, Grey Wacky, those wines are so, so good. They're, you know, they're expensive for New Zealand. But, like, you know, this... This Pinot Noir is outstanding, and it was like $38 a bottle. I didn't get a discount because I don't have my discount anymore. Ah, very sad day. Listeners, very sad day. We're in a new place. Yeah. Uh, But, like, this $38 Pinot Noir, for my money, is way better than a bunch of wicked expensive California Pinot Noirs. Because California Pinot Noirs can get so expensive, and to me, this is just as good, if not better, than some sixty to hundred dollars bottles. Super quaffable, really nice. It's really good and nutty flavors. I juicy and I I think I kind of get I think what you're calling nutty. I'm getting like a pithy quality to it. Sure. Yeah. Which is, it's almost like almond skin, not almond flavor. The point is, I think it's not chugging wine. No, it's it is not you chugging can really wine. enjoy. But there are some uh, New Zealand wines that are chugging wines. And uh, let me bring up my list. Okay, so I talked about Wither Hills. Um, so I believe Mud House is another label of Kim Crawford that is a little less expensive and is delicious. So check out Mud House. Uh, I've talked about this before, but Kumu or Kumeu. Um, which is the name of a river. It's a Maori word, and I haven't looked up how to pronounce it. But we're gonna, So we're going to say Kumeu, but I've been corrected a thousand times on that. Um, they make an amazing Chardonnay. They're village Chardonnay. Saracen is another kind of higher-end producer in, in New Zealand, and their Chardonnay is outstanding. But they have a, a kind of sub-label, a child label called Momo, and those wines are really, really good. The... 
um, the Momo wines. We also used to sell these wines and I never tried them and I felt really bad because I sold them for years. Um, but they were called Otto's Constant Dream or OCD as we called them. <laughs> uh, the Otto's Constant Dream. <laughs> uh, we carried their Pinot Noir and their Sauvignon Blanc, but those were really popular as well. Um, so those are some of my favorite New Zealand wines. Similar to Chile, which I talked about in last episode, the New Zealand wine scene as it is, is very young. So New Zealand wines as they are now, that's kind of, I'm not saying that they didn't make wine, you know, before all the white white people came and did all the things and stuff. But the, the industry as it is now has kind of been reinvented since about the 60s. And I believe that they're starting to do a lot of beer too. Yeah. And because they're hosting like world beer fest events. Totally. If, totally. If you watch the Brewmasters like mini series with Sam Calagione, who I've met and is a wonderful dude, by the way. Who is the head brewer He's of Dogfish Head? Dogfish Head, yeah, yeah. And, and owner. Which we which we just talked about in the rest, <clears throat> Julia Shafini and I just talked about in the wrestling yeah. episode. But and like, she told me that Dogfish Head makes gin. What the fuck? Yeah, they're I mean their operation is pretty cool. If you ever want to learn about like starting a business and how crazy it is, I recommend both his book and um, just going to his like facilities in Rehoboth Beach. But anyway, like they've they've been there yeah. doing uh, beer stuff at the same time as sure. wine stuff. But sure. but like the the industry in New Zealand seems aggressive. Yeah. And, oh yeah, and 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 it's and really in the wine thinking in the wine industry at least. It's Sauvignon Blanc that is the bread and butter of the wine industry because that is what consumer, like at least in America, just gobble it up. Cougar juice. Cougar, it's not cougar juice. It's not cougar juice. I know. Cougar I know. juice is oaky, buttery it's like Chardonnay. It's like bad Chardonnay. I know, I know. It's I know. not even bad Chardonnay. It's just oaky, buttery Chardonnay. That kind of really big style. But as the cougar moves, yeah, <laughs> does not the juice move as well? Well, that's true. You know, maybe New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. But, you know, it's funny because some people, I feel like people who like that really big, oaky style of Chardonnay don't like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Because hmm. it's kind of the polar opposite. Too crisp it's super too. crisp. It rarely sees any oak. It's... It's very citrusy. It's very right. And you know, cougar juice is more about like just pour it down my gullet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. either one. I think you can pour down your gullet, but, um, but the 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 oaky buttery chardonnay. It's very vanilla heavy. It's very very viscous almost. Viscous. But yeah. So so I kind of feel like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc brought New Zealand wine into the mainstream. The way that Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone brought J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter into the mainstream. But starting with uh, Chamber of Secrets, we start getting a little Pinot Noir, a little stuff that you didn't expect. More complication. A little more complication. It's a little more complex, if you will. And I will. I, I, I will. I will. Thank you. But yeah, so that's so that's why I chose New Zealand for for Chamber of Secrets because it just feels right. You know, it's also a young, it's a fairly young wine region. It's a very small wine region, um, relatively speaking, just because New Zealand, you know, is smaller. Okay, so I have just a few thoughts that I wrote down about Chamber of Secrets, okay. and I want to say them to you because some of them are funny. Let's think them. My first question is. Why don't more people know that Voldemort was Tom Riddle? Like, why don't more people know that, like, 
that yeah, was his name. That's really dumb. Yeah, it's and you like think, super dumb. You think that would be a really good way to like <laughs> negate his propaganda? Yeah, it would be like for Dumbledore to be like, "Oh, hello, welcome, no students. I'm nearly dead. I'll soon be replaced <laughs> by Michael Gambon. But uh, I, I just want you to know that the man who calls himself Voldemort or Voldemort, depending on your pronunciation, is actually just some asshole." <laughs> named Tom Riddle is really not that big a deal yeah and uh, just I don't know remember that for the rest of your lives but be people. useful if you say come across an empty diary <laughs> and yeah, someone right. named Tom Riddle starts writing back to you also it's possible everyone that uh, he has divided his soul into seven parts <laughs> this is a good thing for you to remember spoilers spoilers I mean you know just spoilers <laughs> We've been watching a lot of Doctor Who, but, but okay. good point. Right? Yes. Isn't that a good that point? That is really an oversight. Yeah, like I would think. Like, wouldn't you think that like someone would tell Harry? Yeah, and like, Dumbledore's supposed to be like does. so smart, yeah. and and McGonagall too. And you think well, McGonagall would be like that? Dumbledore? Yeah. <laughs> think. <laughs> you know. Like, and to be fair, I did listen to that chapter in order, the last chapter in Order of the Phoenix or Second to Last or whatever it is, where Dumbledore basically explains why he didn't ter- tell Harry all this shit. But I still... And you're like, okay. But I still think... But, and you're like, okay. Uh, but like, for, for like telling him... Spoilers. Uh, telling him that like the prophecy says that he is gonna die, pretty much. Um, that's one thing. Telling him Voldemort's human name, I feel like that's useful information. Yeah, well, just uh, FYI, Harry, you know, if you come across anything about Tom Riddle, that's important. I also I also wrote after that, I said, did Riddle change his name because Dumbledore's name was so much more awesome than his? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Probably, probably. Easy question. He was like, damn it, this guy's name is Albus Wolfric Brian. No, no, there's another Albus one. Albus Wolfric Percival Brian Dumbledore. Yeah. Um. He's like, damn it, my name is Tom Marvolo Riddle. I guess Marvolo's a weird name. Yeah. That's oddly uh, specific and convenient. Okay, so here's a question that I have about Chamber of Secrets. All right. And you may or may not know the answer. I did not do any research to this effect. But um, talk to me about basilisk mythology. Did Fuck, I should have totally looked okay. into this. I really haven't. I haven't. I don't, I don't know anything about it. Um, I'm assuming that all of the things that J.K. Rowling includes, like, you know, the rooster's crow and uh, spiders flee from it, et cetera, I, et cetera. I really don't know. I am assuming that that is, like, accurate because otherwise the only thing that would be a clue that it would be a basilisk and it doesn't even necessitate that it's a basilisk is that the fact that Harry is a parcel mouth it is introduced and the fact that he can talk to snakes seems important and so when he can hear these voices that no one else can hear that should be a clue that it's a snake but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a basilisk unless the basilisk mythology that she incorporates is like otherwise mythology that some people might know. Apparently what what Wikipedia is telling Ah, the Dr. Wikipedia. Is that um, it's, you know, it's from Greek 
mythology, and it means little king, basilisk. Mm. Right, right. So Basil is the king. The basilisk of Kyrene is a small snake, being not more than 12 fingers in length, that is so venomous it leaves a wide trail of deadly venom in its wake, and its gaze is likewise lethal. Oh, yes, that's the main thing, the, the, the gaze. Its weakness is the odor of the weasel. Oh. Which, according to Pliny the Elder, was thrown into the basilisk's hole, recognizable because some of the surrounding shrubs and grass had been scorched by its presence. It is possible that the legend of the basilisk and its association with the weasel in Europe was inspired by accounts of certain species of Asiatic snakes, such as the king cobra and their natural predator, the mongoose. And mongooses are the Shit. But so just to clarify, the weasel <laughs> is what is deadly to the basilisk. Weasley. Be- <gasps> yeah. What? Honey badger, don't give a fuck. <laughs> and on that note, we'll be back tomorrow to finish up these thoughts after we've charged the battery. Pairing was created, produced, hosted, and edited by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, read, drink, and be merry.